Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, April 7th, we're starting a new series on Sharper Iron. It's called The Imperishable Inheritance. This series will take us through three epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude. The life of the Christian church right now is a life in exile. Right now, we endure various trials that come to us in this life, this life that is twisted by sin and evil. Right now, we stand firm against false teachers and their deceptive teachings that would wage war against the truth. And while we live in this life, we are longing for the eternal home that is ours in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And although these three epistles are short, we will find that they fill us with hope as we sojourn through this life. Peter and Jude both call us to fix our eyes on Jesus, in whom we have this imperishable inheritance. In so doing, these three epistles strengthen us to hold fast to Christ in the midst of suffering and give witness to the hope that is ours in him. Today, we are introducing the first epistle of Peter and looking at the text of 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Vance Becker. Pastor Becker is an LCMS missionary to Kenya. He serves as a theological educator at Nima Lutheran College in Matongo, Kenya. Pastor Becker, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much. It's uh, fun to be here. Pastor Becker, tell us a little bit about your work there in Kenya. What do you what do you do as a missionary in Kenya? Uh, my role here is to teach at the uh, Theological College of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, Kenya. Uh, where we also have students from 11 neighboring countries, and uh, we are helping them to train pastors and deaconesses and evangelists for the fast-growing church in Eastern Africa. Any particular areas of emphasis in your teaching there? The uh, types of classes they're having me teach, uh, a lot of pastoral uh, practical classes. I This semester that uh, well, I say we just finished. Actually, we didn't finish. We have one week left, but the uh, government has closed all educational institutions uh, as of last Friday. So um, the, the class we're sort of you know, almost done with, uh, pastoral ministry and counseling, uh, homiletics, how to preach. Um, but then I also have uh, been teaching uh, Lutheran confessions uh, for evangelists and deaconess students and introduction to New Testament. Uh, last semester, I taught general epistles, starting with First Peter, and I'll teach that again next semester. Fantastic. So, so you've got some experience looking at First Peter with the students there in Kenya, and, and you get to share that information with us today as well here on Sharper Iron. So such a privilege to have you with us, Pastor Becker. Thanks for, for taking time to help us introduce this epistle. So we are starting First Peter. And as we get started in a new book, it's helpful to have some context about author, recipients, date, and things like that as we get started. So to get us started this morning, help us just with the author to begin with. We're in First Peter, probably named after the man who wrote it. Tell us about Peter. Okay. Well, yes, indeed. He makes it easy for us. He tells us who he is, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if Maybe he mentions apostle because he doesn't necessarily personally know these recipients. This is a letter written to a group of churches, uh, like some of Paul's letters, um, uh, not necessarily started by him, but in the area he is, which he is apparently at Ephesus right now as he writes this. Um, no, I'm getting mixed up. No, he's in he's in Rome. He wasn't in Ephesus. Um, where he got acquainted with these churches. This he's writing from Rome. Uh, one of the things that indicates it's from Peter is he mentions being eyewitness of his glory. Um, and when I think about Peter, I think about how he was the one who uh, was didn't confess his faith when he had an opportunity before, but Jesus told him ahead of time that it was going to happen. 
And he said, when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. And that's what he's doing in this letter, uh, as well as following the instruction Jesus gave him after the resurrection, and that is to feed his sheep. Um, one thing interesting about this letter is that he mentions at the very end, chapter 5, verse 12, that it was written uh, with Silas. Well, Silvanus is the, in most translations. We know him as Silas probably more commonly. Um, maybe he sort of acted as secretary, writing things down for him. I wonder if maybe this was something similar to uh, how the early church tells us Mark wrote Peter's gospel account, uh, the gospel of Mark, they say is, is Peter's account of the gospel. Uh, I mention this because the early church was unanimous in saying, oh, yes, this letter is from Peter. Uh, recently, some scholars have said, oh, Peter couldn't have written this letter. The, the Greek is too literary. He wouldn't have known that good of Greek. Well, I don't know why he couldn't have known Greek just as well as James or other of the apostles. Um, but it is possible, uh, some would say, that, that Silvanus, Silas, actually did the writing down for him. Yeah, it, it's always interesting to me that the, the style of Greek or the ability of Greek is used against Peter or, or sometimes other apostles in their writing of the New Testament as a way to question whether they really wrote it or not. I'm reminded of the book of Acts where the religious authorities are amazed at how Peter and John are able to speak with such boldness, even though they were uneducated men. And I don't think it's too big of a leap for us as Christians to understand that, well, maybe these men had a little more education than we give them credit for. And given the role of the Holy Spirit in the writing, to see Peter writing this letter given the unanimous testimony of the church throughout the ages and what the letter itself says isn't far of a stretch. Now, you mentioned, Pastor Becker, that Peter's likely in Rome as he writes this. Uh, why do we think that Peter's in Rome when he writes this? And what is the situation there in Rome and maybe in these churches that he's writing in regards to? Well, it's understood that he wrote this from Rome in the mid-60s. Uh, he was there while Paul was off in Spain at the time. Um, one of the indications is this is makes reference to difficulties such as persecution. This was a time of persecution under Nero, as far as we understand, uh, affecting Rome especially, but likely also the recipients of this letter, if not presently soon. But one of the, to me, one of the clearest indications that it was written in Rome is at the very end when he gives greetings for those at Babylon. Well, okay, Peter was never in Babylon, the, the Babylon we know, but uh, this, uh, I would say, is an indication of that he, he's talking about Rome. Interestingly, John also in the book of Revelation refers to Rome as Babylon. And uh, I'll tell you that I think this, is, this reference is a very, a clear indication of what this whole letter is about, this, this Babylon reference. So how, how does that reference to Babylon, again, likely referring to Rome, how does that shape our understanding of what this letter is about? Well, I'll tell you what I think. And that is, uh, in the very first, uh, uh, well, second verse, um, no, the first verse, excuse me, he talks about them being elect exiles, of the dispersion. Well, who are the exiles of the dispersion? Well, in the Old Testament, it was the Babylonian exile, and after that, the people of Israel were scattered pretty much all over the area, uh, and that was known as the dispersion, and it was, it was a Jewish dispersion. Uh, well, he's writing this letter to those who are Christians, and uh, I think that he is without being explicit about it, drawing a parallel between the experience of the, the Christians who are Israel, uh, as Paul also makes clear, and I think Peter treats them that way too, uh, how they are now exiles uh, far from their heavenly home, uh, living in a place that is not their true home. As the Israelites were in Babylon, uh, that is the capital of the empire where they lived, Paul now is in the capital of the empire where they live. It's the Roman Empire now. He's referring to it as Babylon. Um, 
And, and I think he's drawing a parallel in their experience. The Israelites were told, uh, I think to their surprise, by Jeremiah that they were supposed to uh, just accept this exile. They were to settle down, live there, uh, make their homes there. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, by the way, 4 to 7 and 11 to 13. And that uh, they are to pray for that country and, and hope for it to prosper. And then he goes on to tell them, he says, I've got good plans for you, uh, plans for good. And he also says, and I'm going to take you back home again. And I think Peter is showing them that even though they're, they're suffering, they're, they're foreigners in this, in this alien empire, in a sense, that God is going to use all this for good purposes, that he is fully in control, he knows what he's doing, and just as he used that Babylonian exile to help the Israelites become more faithful, and, and it worked to a degree, they never worshipped idols again, not only that, but also to share their faith with others. Uh, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by simply being faithful to their God, were used as tools to bring, amazingly, uh, other people to faith. And, and Peter makes the point, makes both of those points here. He says, this is going to strengthen your faith. This is going to help you. You just be faithful. You honor the government. And uh, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And act in such a way that's going to glorify God. Because... I think he's telling them this is going to do the same thing God was doing in the Babylonian exile for the Jewish Israel. He's going to do that same thing now for the Christian Israel. I think this is a a fantastic insight that there's a, a a comparison between the situation of the exiles in Israel and the Christian church right now. And it really makes me want to go back and read some of those, those passages that you've referenced that are, admittedly are not always on my radar when it comes to, you know, they're not always there in the lectionary for me to preach on. They're not always ones that I'm, I'm thinking about as a part of my Christian experience. But I think I think the connection that Peter's going to make in this epistle is is one that it's so rich. And and the passages from Jeremiah that you brought out and the whole book of Daniel as, as comparisons that Peter's saying to Christians, look, look at what your fathers in the faith went through in the exile and see how that is true of you as well. Now, as you wait for that, for that homeland, I mean, thinking about the experience of the Israelites who had been taken away from their homeland and just that desire, that longing to go back, how much more do we long for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with him in full? And I think those, those themes are going to come out in this letter, as you're saying, what other themes are there in this letter for us to, to find? Well, the, I think the big theme is you know, endurance, of, you know, just patient, faithful endurance uh, in view of the hope that Christ is coming again. He's going to rescue you. Uh, you are going to go home in the end. There's an emphasis on that, that eternal inheritance that they're going to go home to. Um, just as there was a constant reminder for the Jewish people in B- Babylon that they were going to go home again to their homeland, their inheritance, that land of Palestine. Um, the, and inheritance is sort of the, the Jewish way of talking about God's promises. And, and Peter uses that term here uh, as a way of talking about God's promises. Now, one thing comment I'll make is many think that actually this letter was written to primarily Gentile uh, Christians whether they were Jewish converts first and then Christians or just became Christians. And maybe that's why he doesn't, expi- he doesn't explicitly mention Jeremiah and Daniel and, and those things. Um, but whether or not his readers know all those Bible stories, which I think they might very well, uh, he certainly knows all those Bible stories and he's, he's tying this together. Uh, just as in several places, he seems to be quoting Jesus. Uh, he, he talks about being born again. He talks about um, the, you know, the inheritance that can't perish or fade, uh, which Jesus says things like that um, in the Gospels. Well, Peter heard him say that himself. Now, his readers may not have heard Jesus says, say that, but Peter knows he said that, and he, he refers to that without directly saying, I'm quoting Jesus here. 
Yeah, you, you can definitely get a feel for Peter quoting from Jesus and quoting from the Old Testament as well. It is a little interesting to think about who his primary recipients are. Are there a lot of Gentiles? Are there also Jews in there? And I think, and you can see commentators fall on either side, at least in some of the commentaries that I referenced in preparation for this. But either way, the same promises apply to both Jew or Gentile. They are one in Christ. So with with some of that in mind, one thing that we, we kind of, I think maybe we touched on it, but didn't dig into it too much. Peter is likely in Rome writing this epistle to elect exiles of the dispersion, and he specifies a few places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I think you mentioned earlier, Pastor Becker, that perhaps Peter didn't know these churches personally. Why is he writing to these particular churches? What? Why there? Well, uh, I think these churches are sort of in the orbit of Ephesus. They're not that close to Ephesus, but may very well have been started by Christians from Ephesus or, or Christians from Ephesus had contacts there. I think it's possible that they were started by Christ, those who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, because these are areas that were mentioned uh, that people came from the Pentecost. Uh, this is a, a region of Asia Minor, uh, north of the, the Taurus Mountains, and uh, a region that, as far as we know, Paul did not go into. Uh, we read in his second journey, he was sort of trying to get into this area. The Holy Spirit didn't let him go that way. He went another direction. Um, and so this is not Pauline territory. Um, and maybe that's why Peter, who had, there, there's this understanding between him and Paul, you work with these people, I'll work with those people. Um, and uh, maybe he said, okay, these are people that, that, uh, I'm working with uh, because of their contact with Ephesus, where Peter had been for some time. That's that's what I know about it. Hmm. So thinking about the epistle as a whole, we've got Peter in Rome writing to these churches near Ephesus, probably not a ton of contact with Paul. Paul's likely off in Spain at this time. Anyway, a time of persecution is starting, probably not the worst part of it yet, but it is beginning Peter's writing to these churches. As you think about this epistle, Pastor Becker, what are some of the key passages that we need to look out for? Well, just off the top of my head, the the ones that stand out to me are where he talks about, you know, you are this this holy nation, uh, this royal priesthood, this people belonging to God. Uh, He talks about their identity, uh, and, and then also their purpose, um, that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, that verse for me always stands out as the verse that says, here's what the church is all about. And that is declaring God's praises by not only by our words, but by our actions, uh, which, which Peter emphasizes in, in this letter. Now, the way you live is, and he talks, you know, it's pretty specifically about the way you live as Christians um, so that you, your hope shows, and then you have an opportunity to give a reason for that hope that is in you. The other thing I think about when I think about First Peter is uh, where he talks about the, the flood of Noah and ties that into Christian baptism, where where the evil is drowned and, and uh, the new comes to life again, being saved by God. Uh, the very clear passage, baptism now saves you, you know, which interestingly comes just shortly after the, the one clear verse in the Bible about Jesus' descent into hell. Where that, that also comes from this, this book. Hmm. Yeah, there, there's so many really just fantastic passages. And the two that you pointed out also stand out to me. I was, I was reading through this letter, you know, in its entirety before our conversation today, which is something I would encourage anyone to do when you, especially with these shorter books of the Bible, when you have the chance, sit down and read the letter or the book straight through and try to get a feel for the whole thing. And and I've only done it a couple times, so I, I can't say that I've, I'm an expert by any means, but that passage in First Peter 3, where Peter references baptism saving you and around it, he's got this, what I've called before a journey that Christ takes in his suffering, death, descent into hell, resurrection and ascension. I mean, just trying to, trying to fit the whole letter together in my mind, that text really stands in the center of it. 
and, and I think because, and, and part of the reason I say that is because in the verses we're going to look at today, for example, Peter's really going to talk a lot about Jesus' resurrection as the place where our hope is found. But we're going to find other places in this epistle where he's really going to talk a lot about the sufferings that Jesus endured and how his endurance under suffering encourages us and our endurance in suffering. And so you, you see him throughout this epistle, you know, take various parts of Christ's ministry and apply them to those who are reading this epistle. Not all that different from the way a pastor might preach a sermon and emphasize perhaps the suffering of Christ in one sermon and then the resurrection a little more in the next. But then in the middle there in chapter three, you get him telling you the whole thing that Christ did all the way from suffering to ascension. And it's just, I, I want to make that the the center, but I'll, I'll see, I'll see if, as we go through this study and, and maybe, maybe that'll come to bear. Maybe, maybe I'll have a different opinion by the end of it. So any more thoughts or comments about the epistle as a whole, Pastor Becker, before we jump into these first verses? Well, since you ask, I, I just have to mention, we also find in this letter the the reference to watching out for the devil who prowls around like a mm-hmm. roaring lion. Um, and I, I just have to mention that because I, I have watched a lion prowling. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty sneaky. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. So, so, and I assume that's there in Kenya that like that didn't happen at a zoo in the United States somewhere, but that was, you've seen a lion prowling in Kenya. That happened in Tanzania. Okay. All right, man. That's awesome. Wow. So a a great visual to keep in our minds for when we get to first Peter chapter five of an actual lion prowling around. That's what the devil's doing. And yet I love, I love that passage. You know, Peter simply says, resist him firm in your faith. It, it's, it's beautiful that, that you've got this dangerous enemy and yet you're firm in your faith. You have Christ. And so you, you can stand. Ah, fantastic yeah. stuff. So, lots uh, of, lots of, go ahead. I, I just want to say about that resisting and standing firm in your faith. You know, uh, if you're, if you're attacked by a bear, the thing to do is to lie down and play dead. If you're attacked by a, a cat, a mountain lion or, or a lion, the thing to do is to make yourself as big and bold as possible. Um, and that's the thing to do when you are when you're attacked by the devil. Don't lie down and play dead. Uh, in Tanzania, there are a couple of brothers we met who, who described um, seeing a lion with a fresh kill. And they would just go running at it, yelling, screaming, waving their jackets, chase it off, cut off a big steak and run back to their vehicle to cook it up for supper. Um, be as big and bold as you can. Mm. Yeah, one one little word can fell him. Doctor Luther tells us in in the hymn "A Mighty Fortress." We're we're going to come to that text. I'm looking at my calendar here, Pastor Becker. We're going to come to that text on April 28th. So I'm going to have to remember that image of of making myself big and running at a lion when when attacked by the devil. That's fantastic. We're gonna we're gonna hold on to that one. Thank you for that. So let's go ahead. We've got a couple minutes here before our break. So let's go ahead and, and read the text and and jump in here a little bit. So this is First Peter one, beginning at verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
That is our text for today. First Peter one verses one through 12. Pastor Becker, we got just about a minute here before the break. Maybe the, the place to start is Peter identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why is that an important designation? I guess I would say that he, he's speaking with authority. And, and in this letter, he mentions, yeah, I'm an eyewitness. He wants these people to, to have confidence, not just in him, but in his message. This, this is genuine, people. Uh, this is what Jesus Christ himself wants you to know. Uh, Paul does this also in some of his letters, makes a, a point of his apostleship, not to build himself up, but to assure them of the truth of what he is saying. Yeah, Peter writes with the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who sent him. And we're going to continue to see how he writes the word of God here in 1 Peter. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharp Iron. We're talking to Pastor Vance Becker about 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 7th, and we are studying 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Vance Becker. He's an LCMS missionary to Kenya, serving as a theological educator at Nima Lutheran College in Matango, Kenya. Pastor Becker, just before I forget this, I think you said Nima Lutheran College. The word Nima is grace in Swahili. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So Grace Lutheran College for all you English speakers in Matongo, Kenya. Awesome. Pastor Becker, we left off at our break. We were talking about just those first couple verses of the epistle. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is one sent. He has the authority of Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing that this is not the word of man. It is the word of Christ that is that is being given here. And he says he's writing... And we've talked about those various places that he mentions, but he calls them elect exiles. And he says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. We've talked about the exile as a theme for this letter, but why, why does Peter designate them as elect exiles? And then according to God's foreknowledge. Uh, Peter, I think is emphasizing here the same thing that the other writers emphasize. I think Paul uses the word predestination. He doesn't use that actual word here. But the point is that, that before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be his people. And that's reassuring because it reminds us it's got nothing to do with who I am. It's got everything to do with who God is. And uh, that God made that quite clear to Israel of the Old Testament. Uh, you are nothing. I chose you. I made you uh, because I wanted to, because I'm gracious. And uh, that the same is true for these Peter that people that Peter is writing to here. Um, God is showing them, I knew ahead of time that I was going to choose you. He planned before the foundation of the world how he was going to save us. Uh, and he brought that, that salvation to us by his plan. And, and that's a comforting thing. That God who knew that all that stuff in the past, that same God knows what you're going through now. He knows the future. Uh, you know, this is a comfort to us, as I mentioned, that our school was closed suddenly just before finals started. And I commented to the students as they were leaving, God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. He's going to use us all for good. Uh, we just have to trust him and wait and see. Hmm. Yeah, that that theme, the, the theme of election and God's foreknowledge here, I think is particularly comforting in precisely what Peter's writing toward the, the time of suffering, this time of exile that God knows what he's doing is, is certainly a comfort to those to whom Peter wrote and to us still today. Now, Peter here in his greeting, he mentions God, the father, God, the spirit, and then Jesus Christ. You, you've got a Trinitarian greeting here. How does this Trinitarian greeting come forth from Peter? What does he emphasize about the work of each person of the Holy Trinity here? Well, I would say the, foreknowledge of God, the Father, he, it's, he, he's the one has planned this from eternity. 
the role of the Holy Spirit, he very clearly described it, sanctification. Now, we use the word, we recognize the word sanctification is used both in a wide and a narrow sense. Most commonly in the narrow sense, the holy, he develops holy living in us, but the wider sense includes the bringing us to faith so that we're immediately holy. And I think the sanctification work he's talking about here is both. He's, he brought us to faith. He works his holiness in our lives. He talks about the obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Now, this word obedience, I if I can go on from the Holy Spirit to talk about his reference to Jesus Christ, I think it's important to understand the Greek word for this uh, is the word to means to listen thoroughly. And it's usually translated obedience. Uh, I was thinking the same sense that my mother always used to say, and she might listen to this, you know, now you listen to me. Well, you know good and well, she's not just saying, hear what I'm saying. She's, she, she means do it. And, and that's the kind of hearing of Jesus Christ uh, that, that is translated obedience. So what is obedience to Jesus Christ? I think it is doing what he tells us to do, which is believe the gospel. So obedience to Christ is not necessarily law. It is calling us to believe the gospel. Uh, that's what I think especially Peter is calling us to. Now, of course, obedience to his will follows that always when there is faith, but that's what it's calling us to. And can I comment on the sprinkling with his blood part also? Well, let me let me jump in on the word obedience there because I, I'm I'm with you with that that the word obedience here in this context is is much more in line with what we think of as as faith. It, it, the way that I when I look at that Greek word, it's let me see, I'll pronounce it hoop hoop if I'm pronouncing that correctly, or hupakuo, which means to it's it's two words put together from my understanding. It's to hear or to be under and then under. So the word is, is to be under the hearing or under the word. Well, what does it mean to be under the word of Jesus Christ? Well, sometimes it, it does mean to obey. When Jesus says to do something, to be under that word is to do it. But when he gives you a promise, what does it mean to be under the word of a promise? Well, you can't obey a promise. You believe a promise. And so I'm I'm with you that, that I think the word obedience there particularly has a lot more to do with faith than it does with you better do it or or else kind of kind of obedience. I, so I, I think I'm on the same page with you. So feel free to comment on that. And then, yeah, take us into the sprinkling. Yep. This uh, Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So in the Old Testament, and, and again, there's these constant references to the Old Testament, not explicitly, but, but it's there. There were three times in the Old Testament that there was sprinkling with blood. One is at the ratification of the covenant. Uh, you now are God's chosen people because of the sprinkling of the blood. So connect that back to, to the being elect. The next time the, there's a sprinkling of the blood is the Day of Atonement. You are forgiven because of the sprinkling of the blood. And the next time there's sprinkling of blood is the consecration of the high priest is sprinkled with blood. And Peter here later on talks about how you are a royal priesthood. So what does Christ do through the sprinkling of his blood? He makes us his people. He gives us forgiveness of sins. And he consecrates us to be his priests. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of freight right there in those little words. It's always amazing how much is packed into these greetings that that Paul and Peter and and the apostles give us in the New Testament. It's so easy to to pass over them without pondering these words, but there's really so much there. And as you said, just in that one word, sprinkling, then we we come to two more words that I think are very easy to pass over because you know your pastor might say them right before his sermon every week, something like this. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you so that we don't just blow by that. What's in that, Pastor Becker? Well, and I, I think you're right. The, the reason we they're so familiar to us is because you know, grace and peace to you is a common Jewish greeting. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. Um, I, I think grace pops out at me, uh, partly because I didn't mention this when we were talking about the theme. 
at the end of this book, chapter 5, verse 12, he makes the comment. I'm going to flip to it and just read that verse, not to steal thunder from anybody who's going to get to this verse later. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I think that's his theme. I think that's what this letter is all about. It's about the true grace of God. So the true grace. What is the true grace of God? Well, I think it is this. You might think if you're suffering that the grace, God's grace would mean that he takes away your suffering. Well, he makes it clear in this letter that's not going to happen. I think what he means by the true grace of God is that's the grace that makes you able to endure the suffering. Uh, that's the way God works. He doesn't take away the suffering. He makes you able to endure it. He, he uses the word grace, I think, in this sense, also in chapter 2, verse 20, where he talks about if you do good and still suffer for it, that's grace of God. Uh, it's God's grace that makes us able to do that. And so that's the grace. And the peace is uh, the assurance that God's got everything covered. I have nothing to worry about. I've got peace with God. Therefore, I have peace in this world. And he says, not just may grace and peace be yours, but may it be multiplied in you. He uses that same word in his second letter, multiplied. In other words, increasing, growing grace and peace. Hmm. Then he gets into this great blessing in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, uh, these words are just so rich here at the beginning. I, I associate them with the season of Easter. I can't remember which year in the three-year lectionary they show up. But, but there's so much Easter good news in this text. Uh, take us into this opening blessing that Peter speaks in verse 3. Here and in, in the, I'm going to sort of look back at the introduction, we, I think we repeatedly see his use of past, present, and future, sort of tying them all together. Um, in uh, Let's look at verses 3 to 5. He says, blessed be God. Now, here's another Jewish expression uh, in, in Hebrew, Baruch Adonai. They use that in the, the Passover celebration. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe. And often, the, the blessed be God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here... It's not blessed be God, Father of Isaac. It's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, that's our ancestry, uh, not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and again, he's looking back at what has God done for us. Well, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. John 3, verse 3, you must be born again. Now, he doesn't quote that, but he heard that. Um, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This, this, uh, so he's talking about what has happened for us, and he's talking about this living hope because we have been, how are we born again? Being born again is by being buried with Christ in his baptism and raised again with him, and that's how we have this new life that is a living hope, not something that can, can fade or perish. And so that's what that's something that has happened to us uh, that we have now. And then he talks about the inheritance. And he used this term inheritance several times. As I commented, this is the Jewish way of referring to the promise that we have. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, uh, echoing in my mind are Jesus' words uh, about uh, from Matthew 6, verse 20. Uh, where you have your treasure where thieves can never break in and steal and, and moth and rust don't decay. For the Jewish people, the inheritance was that land in Canaan. Well, we have a better land, and that is our heavenly homeland, which can never be taken away. Uh, and uh, so the thing is, yet it's this is ours, but it's not yet revealed. Jesus is with us, but we don't see him. As Abraham was in that land that was promised to him as an inheritance, but he did not yet see it fully through faith. He, he died still seeing things through the eyes of faith. And that's what Peter is calling us to do as well, to, to see this which is ours through faith. Hmm. 
I love how you pointed out that Peter does tie together here the past, the present, and the future. And it is amazing to see how he will use both the past, what God has done for us in the past. He's had mercy on us. He's He's given us a new birth into this living hope through Jesus' resurrection and what he's going to do for us in the future. He's going to bring us to this salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's guarding it for us right now. All of that, the past and the future, both of those have a real impact on what it means for us to live as a Christian right now. What does it mean for me to to live in this hope? What is it? What does that mean for my faith? What does that mean for my life? Peter's really going to draw out the implications of both of those things throughout this epistle. He's already doing it here in these wonderfully memorable words. I think you're you're right to hear the echo of Jesus' own words from the the Sermon on the Mount. You know the the treasure that we have. That, that rust and moth can't destroy and thieves can never break in and steal. Peter's, it's like he's preaching on those words of Jesus. And, and I mean, he's bringing in, as, as you said, all this rich Old Testament imagery as well, drawing on the things that he heard Jesus preach himself uh, as an eyewitness as of all those things. It's really marvelous. Now, it, in verse six, there does seem to be, be a bit of a, a transition. It, he says, you know, you're going to rejoice. Yes, we're rejoicing in this. But then he says, for a little while right now, you might be grieved by various trials. What is, what's the move that Peter's making in the verses that follow? What does he say about our life now in the midst of these trials? Well, I think you're right. There's a transition. If I may, looking back again, I think verses one and two, he, he talks about the source of grace in the past. God's choosing the blood of Jesus In the verses we just looked at, verses 3 to 5, he's talking about the result of that grace in the future, our inheritance. And now in verses 6 to 9, he's talking about the consequence of that grace in the present. Because of what's happened in the past, because of what's happening in the future, what's happening right now, we're rejoicing. Even though at the same time right now, uh, we are suffering, we're grieved by various trials. And and he comes, now this is for a little while. It's it's not forever. It seems like a long time when we're in it, but it's not forever. Uh, And it's necessary. This is part of God's work in our lives. Uh, Every good thing God does for us, uh, he he seems to do through suffering. I mean, Jesus' salvation, that's through suffering. Uh, the, the death of our old sinful self and the new man, that's through suffering. So, yeah, it's necessary to go through these trials. He uses the term grieved. Grieved happens when there's a loss. Uh, yes, we lose. Uh, there are many things we've lost, although it, it can't be compared to what we gain when we follow Christ. Uh, Peter remembers Jesus talking about that with him personally. We've left everything to follow you. Um, but... Uh, We have so much more to gain. The result is, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith. And here, I think, this is part of that picture of what happened in the Babylonian captivity. They lost so much. Yes. What's the result? Tested genuineness of faith. And he talks about this being more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire. Now, Gold doesn't, isn't made gold by fire. It's, it's there already, but, but it's revealed. Our faith, we're not made faithful by, by the testing by fire, but, but that, that purifies it, that it shows it for what it is. This faith that I have, that I'm holding on to, I see how precious and valuable that is when I see how it brings me through these fires of testing, the fiery darts of the devil. And that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First of all, of course, praise, glory, and honor to him, because he's the one who has brought us through it. But then also, because we're with him, praise, glory, and honor for us at his revelation when he comes again in glory. Not because we've earned it, but because that's what he gives us. He gives us glory and honor uh, along with him as he has brought us through these things uh, to himself in heaven. And 
Uh, we can think in the past of like Job in the Old Testament, and various passages in the Old Testament. Here again, this is an Old Testament reference to this refining uh, and purifying. In verses eight and nine, uh, Peter, it sounds, I mean, he's, he's almost echoing some of that. What is, is when, when he's talking to Thomas, when Jesus is talking to Thomas, have you, have you believed because you've seen blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed? It seems like that's echoing in Peter's mind as he gets into, to verses eight and nine. What, what is Peter saying again? It seems like he's, he's kind of wrapping up a little thought before he moves on to the next there in verses eight and nine. Yeah, I think here he's sort of wrapping past, present, and future all. He's weaving them all together. Uh, we rejoice now, despite trials in the past, in view of future glory. Uh, so, you know, it, God sees everything at once. He's outside of time. And Peter is showing us, you know, look. Look at the whole of, of eternity together. And... Uh, then in verses 8 and 9, uh, uh, commentators have noted that we sort of see a, an ABBA type of structure here, uh, where you've got bookends sort of pointing to the middle. Uh, in the past, we have not seen him in the past, but we do love him. Uh, we do not see him now, but we do believe in him, and uh, so rejoice. And so in the future, we're going to receive salvation uh, as an outcome of what faith does for us. Uh, and so he is here with us, is not yet revealed, but this is something we're, we're going to see. And so in the middle of this, so our salvation is going to reveal, be revealed the last time, verse 5. Already now we rejoice, verse 8. Uh, and in the middle of this is what God has done for us. Verses 10 through 12, Paul, sorry, not Paul, Peter says concerning this salvation, and then he brings up the prophets. So, you know, we've been talking Jew and Gentile together here, which, which is in view. He's going to reference the Old Testament here again. But we got about five minutes just as a, a heads up, Pastor Becker. But what is, what is Peter saying as he concludes the section we've got today? He's, I think he's emphasizing how wonderful this is. Again, we're looking at the past, the prophets in the past. They, oh, they would have loved to see what you're seeing. They were, God told me to prophesy this, but, but they, they searched and inquired carefully. Maybe not so much what he was talking about, but, but when's this going to happen? Daniel asked that. Habakkuk asked that. You know, the disciples asked that in Matthew. But when is this going to happen? And he's saying, this is it. Now, this is what they were trying to see. Um, and then at the end, he, he looks from the other direction, the angels. The angels brought these messages. So we get the prophets, we've got the angels bringing this message. They long to look into these things. Wow, that's amazing. You know, the angels bring this message of salvation. They have no experience. They do not know what it's like to be saved, to have God love us so deeply and richly that he would become one of us and die for us. I mean, angels sinned. Lucifer fell. Did God redeem him? Yeah, I got a million of them. I don't need you. But God did this for us, and the angels are standing, oh, what wonderful, special people these are, that God does this for them. And so what were they in the past looking for? What were the angels trying to understand? Verse 11, the Spirit of Christ, indicating what he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's what this letter is about, the suffering and the subsequent glory, the glory that comes through the suffering, through the suffering of Christ for us. And because of that, God brings us through suffering with Christ to glory ourselves. Uh, that's what's being ha has been announced to us, that is being announced to us, that is what's preached in the good news, and that's what he's preaching here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, these, these verses really do emphasize just how precious of a thing God has given to us Christians. As, as you're talking, I was reminded of, of the way Jesus speaks to his disciples, where he tells them, you know, many eyes long to see what your eyes see and many ears long to hear what your ears hear, dear disciples. And and the same is true for you and for me as, as Christians, that 
that in even though we don't see Christ the same way Peter and the others saw him, yet we still love him. Yet we still have this word that is preached to us to get you know a little bit farther into this letter. We'll look at that text tomorrow. This is the great good news that God has given to you and to me and to all Christians in his son, Jesus Christ, that that helps us to stand and endure in the midst of our sufferings in this time of exile as we long for that homeland that is ours to come. Pastor Becker, with just about two minutes here, help us to wrap things up, summarize the text, uh, give us the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. I think it is reminding us as we look at our past, as we look at our future, especially in days like this, so much uncertainty, uh, and yet it's reminding us Christ is with us now in the midst of it. He has been with us in the past before creation. He planned to save us. He worked out that plan. He brought us to salvation. He, he planned how we we're going to hear that word. The Holy Spirit was going to sanctify us through that word. He has wonderful things in store for us already in heaven. It's all ready for us because of what Christ has done. He is most certainly going to preserve us and bring us to that. And that gives us great hope right here and now. In the midst of what we can't see or understand, that yes, he will bring us through these things. Pastor Vance Becker is LCMS missionary to Kenya, serving as a theological educator at Nima Lutheran College in Matango, Kenya, helping us this morning with First Peter chapter one, verses one through twelve. Pastor Becker, thanks for being our guest today. It's a privilege to be with you and your listeners. A privilege to have you with us. I am your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, rejoicing in the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though we don't see him, we love him. The Holy Spirit has brought us to faith in him and will carry us forward to that day when we see him face to face at the resurrection of all things. If you have any questions about 1 Peter, 2 Peter, or the book of Jude for this series that's continuing for about a month, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and spending the hour with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.